Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. I'm just kidding. Philippians. Philippians 1, 1 to 6 is where we're going to be this morning. What would you do if we just went 24 straight years through the Gospels? <laughs> Philippians 1, 1 to 6 is where we're going to be this morning. There is some sense of satisfaction that comes with completing a job. Regardless of what it is, when you've put every piece in place and you've worked tirelessly at all hours of the night, that final nail is pounded or, or maybe that last coat of paint is put on. You step back and you look at what you've done, what you've done and there, there's some sense of accomplishment, some sense of fulfillment when you've seen something go from start to finish. But, but there's also some sense of regret that comes along with it, right? There's, you know all the little nooks and crannies that just didn't quite turn out the way that you wanted them to. You see all the blemishes, even though somebody might see it and, and not think anything of it. You know where all those little uh, things that you tried to hide are, and they stick out like a sore thumb to you. And, and maybe some of it was your fault. Maybe you learned something that you'll be better prepared for next time that you didn't know this time. Or maybe some of it wasn't your fault. Maybe you didn't have the right tool to accomplish what you really wanted to do, so you had to make do with what you had. But when the job is done, there's mostly some sense of satisfaction, and yet there's also some twinge of regret about certain things. You are, after all, the builder. This morning we're going to be beginning a series through the book of Philippians, a series that I've entitled The Christ-Centered Life. And admittedly, it's a little bit of a cheap title. And the reason is because you could probably say that about every book of the Bible, at least every book of the New Testament. But in this book in particular, Paul is, is going to encourage the church at Philippi, or the Philippian church, toward Christ-centeredness in all areas of their life, and he seems to come back to it over and over and over again so that they might be, as he says in verse 11 of chapter 1, pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In other words... Christ-centeredness, or at least as I'm defining it here, and I think as Paul would define it in this letter to the church at Philippi, Christ-centeredness is a life that is filled with the fruit of righteousness that can only come through a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul wants us to be a finished product, a completed work of art, in many ways, this is a sequel to the book of Matthew. I think you could probably say that about most of the books of the New Testament, but maybe particularly this one. When the last we saw Jesus, he and his disciples were standing there on the mountain, and he was challenging them. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and he challenged them to go and make disciples, and he defined that as baptizing and teaching. In other words, their lives from this time forth and forevermore, are meant to be centered on the work of His kingdom. That reverberates through the Gospel of Matthew, does it not? Where He tells His disciples in Matthew 6, 
Hey, focus, think about, set your minds on the things that are above. Well, the rest of the New Testament is essentially the church that Jesus established being taught by the apostles, by the disciples, how to live their lives in a Christ-centered way. And so with that in mind, let's begin our study of Philippians with the first passage in Philippians 1, 1 to 6. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray over this word that you have given to us, that we be challenged by it, corrected by it, trained, equipped for every good work. Only you can do that through your spirit and through your word, and I pray that you would do that now. Speak in place of me to all of us, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Philippians is a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Philippi, as you'll see on map, do we have a map? I think maybe, maybe not. Maybe we don't have a map. We don't have a map. It's okay. We would have had a map, but we don't have a map today. It's all right. I'll pay you back next time. How about that? Uh, The city of Philippi is about 10 miles inland from the port of Neapolis on the Mediterranean Sea. So if you can picture kind of the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, down on the left side is Greece. Philippi is about 200 miles from Athens, Greece, and, uh, and it's, it's right there on the coast in a little nook, which would make a lot more sense if we had a map, but we don't. It's okay. Um, I want you to think about, go back in your mind if you can, and picture a time in 50 AD. I know that's kind of hard to do, but imagine you're living there in Philippi in 50 AD. Luke refers to it in Acts 16 as a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. The city of Philippi took pride in being Roman citizens. It was important that they were Roman citizens. They were, after all, designed to be a miniature version of the city of Rome, but with a fraction of the population. Picture a a group, maybe ten to 15,000 people only in this entire city. When Paul arrives in Philippi on his second missionary journey, the town doesn't even have ten Jewish men. That's how Roman, that's how Greek it really is. The town doesn't have ten Jewish men, which would have been the bare minimum for a synagogue. They don't have a synagogue within the city walls. And so, what is it that we find Paul and Silas and even Luke doing there in the city of Philippi, but that they walk outside the city gates to pray with what few Jewish people are there. Judaism in the city is an official religion. It doesn't have a synagogue. So the best place they can meet is outside the city walls and gather there. And the only people they meet there are Jewish women, God-fearing Jewish women. 
Well, on their way there, they encounter a demon-possessed girl who is proclaiming who they are and what they're here to do. Paul has had enough, and so he turns around and he casts out the demon out of this girl and then continues outside the city walls to meet with the Jewish women. Among them, we're told in Acts 16, verse 14, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And it's at this place that Paul begins to speak to the women there, presumably about Jesus. He begins witnessing to them. And then Luke tells us, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so the result of the Lord opening her heart and hearing what Paul was saying in the gospel was that Lydia came to faith and then she called the men over to her house to tell her whole family this same good news that she had just heard. The Lord opened their heart and her family believed also and there her and her family were baptized. Now after some time had passed, the slave girl's owners become aware of what's happened to their slave. That Paul and Silas had cast the demon out of this girl. You see, this slave girl was used to make money for her owners. She was telling the fortunes of people as she would encounter them. And so they became aware that Paul and Silas were the culprits, the ones that had ruined their money-making scheme. And these owners of this slave dragged Paul and Silas before the city magistrates. And we're told there by Luke in Acts 16, 20-24. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted with many with, uh, with had and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the prison, the inner prison, and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, having been beaten and put in prison, and their feet held in stocks, what do Paul and Silas begin doing but ministering to the other prisoners that are there in their midst? Well, they have stocks around their ankles, so it's not like they can go to the jail cell where these prisoners are and begin ministering to them. So they begin praying out loud and singing hymns of faith. We see in Acts 16... Verse 26 and following, Then there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him 
and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So Paul and Silas, throughout their entire time in Philippi, were just faithful. With whatever situation they were presented, they found a way to minister. But needless to say, their circumstances were, well, they were less than ideal. Let's say that. In most towns that they traveled to, you understand, they found a contingent of Jews, even amongst Greek cities. They frequently found synagogues located in that place where they would go into the synagogues and they would reason with the men in the synagogues. That would make the most sense, right? You have a a group of already God-fearing people there in a synagogue hearing the word of the Old Testament where they would come into the synagogue, read the scroll, and talk about how that was fulfilled uniquely in Jesus. Here they are in Philippi, and they don't find that. They find on the outskirts of the city some Jewish women gathered there to pray. But then after that, they would either be accepted by the Jews or they would be run off from the synagogue by the Jews. And what would they do there in the city but turn to the Gentiles and begin proclaiming the gospel to them? And normally what we see happen in Acts time and time again is that as they proclaim the word to the Gentiles, the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. They believe in the Lord Jesus and they're saved. But we find out in Philippi that that was also not so. In fact, they're dragged before the magistrates and they're beaten, which was particularly significant in Philippi because they fancied themselves to be a little Rome and they've just violated Roman law by beating Roman citizens without a trial. That's a problem. There's no synagogue to be had and yet the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to hear and believe. The Gentiles weren't really responsive either. In fact, that casting out of the slave girl leads them into more trouble. They get into shackles. They're beaten. They're put into prison. And yet, in the midst of their singing and their praying while they're in shackles, the words of their songs penetrate the ears of a Philippian jailer as he hears them singing. God shakes the foundations of the jail and opens up their chains. And yet... The miracle here is that not only did the word penetrate the ears of the Philippian jailer, but that they were also found to be true to their word and demonstrated Christian integrity in staying in the jail cell. Upon seeing their integrity matching their message, the Philippian jailer comes to faith. Paul and Silas then go to the household and preach the same message to his household and all of his household believes. So here they are. They're released from prison and they've got two families in Philippi who believe in Jesus. Lydia's family and the family of an unnamed jailer. And mind you, Lydia is not even from Philippi. She's from Laodicea. This is hardly what you would consider a conventional church plant. 
There's no church planting gurus alive today that would say, all right, you've got a good start. Here's a Philippian jailer and his family, just the one. Here's a lot of trouble amongst the city that they've already made for themselves, already been into prison. And the other convert is not even from the town. So let's flash forward some 10 years later. 10, maybe 15 years at the most later. Paul is writing a letter to a church now firmly established in Philippi. Can you just stop for just a second and think about that? Look at where the church began. A Philippian jailer. A God-fearing Jewish lady outside the city walls. And now we have a church, not fledgling, not struggling to make it, a thriving church. He writes the letter with Timothy, his young disciple. Timothy's probably the secretary of this letter, writing down as the near-blind Paul dictates what he wants to say to the church at Philippi. And they're writing to all the saints. Definitely more than just Lydia and the Philippian jailer and their respective families. Now they're actually surrounded by a church. What does he call out? Led by overseers or elders. That's another term. They're synonymous. And deacons. Overseers or elders are the teachers of the church. They're men that are charged with the overall leadership of the church. Hence the name overseers. As well as the teaching, which is their primary job. Deacons are servants of the church. They're charged with leading the church body in service. Hence the name deacon, which literally means servant. I want you to just think about what a tremendous work the Lord has done in the life of Philippi over the last 10 to 15 years. But not only do we find there is a significant multiplication process that's gone on the last 10 years, but Paul opens the body of his letter with thanksgiving. Look at verse 3. He opens there with thanksgiving to them. For what? For their partnership with him in gospel ministry. And what we find out later on is that's actually the reason why he's writing the letter of Philippians back to the church at Philippi. It seems that the church has found out that he's in prison, or at least has been in prison, and they become concerned with his well-being. And so, Paul tells them in Philippians 4, 18, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So the church at Philippi becomes concerned that he's in prison. They send to him gifts, and they do it via Epaphroditus, who carries those gifts to him. But there was a problem. Once Epaphroditus got to, the church, to, to Paul in prison, he became sick, and he was laid up, and he was near death. And so we see this in Philippians 2, 27. Indeed, Epaphroditus was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should, should have sorrow upon sorrow. So now Paul is writing the letter of Philippians back to a church who's given to him a gift, thanking them for the gifts that they have sent, and it's serving a double purpose. He's going to send it with Epaphroditus as they go. Epaphroditus is carrying the letter, and then he can actually return back to the congregation 
of Philippi. So let's pause. With all of that in our background, the reason for the letter, the foundation of the church at Philippi, now we look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all make, uh, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And what exactly does he mean when he says the words partnership in the gospel? Well, it's not just supplying his needs. Look forward to next week in verse 7 when he says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So the church at Philippi, it turns out, has not just been a helper to him in supplying all of his needs, but it seems that they've also been a stalwart defender of the gospel both by supporting him and, it seems, in their hometown of Philippi. So given all of the background that we know is true about the church of Philippi, given Paul's relationship with them and his joy and his thanksgiving over his relationship with them and their stalwart defense of the gospel back home, it leads Paul to this conclusion in verse 6. And I am sure of this that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Their partnership with Him, their faithfulness in the Gospel, their constant defense and confirmation of the Gospel leads Him to the conclusion that this is a legitimate work of God. How else could you explain it? Consider how it began. Not even a Jewish synagogue have to go outside the city walls. No real families to speak of represented. Husbands and wives, children. A lady from Thyatira making purple garments. He shares the gospel and her family comes to faith. They're put in prison. They're in a lot of trouble. They're tied up in shackles, yet they're singing their prayer and their integrity leads a Philippian jailer and his family to faith. And then what happened? From the first day until now, they become partners with Paul in the gospel message. And we can only presume that they begin sharing the gospel there in Philippi. That their faithful gospel witness then bears fruit into the lives of other people in the city. Who knows? Maybe even people that were part of putting Paul in prison. Who were there a part of the mob accusing Paul and Silas of taking away their moneymaker. How else can you explain such a rapid turn in the life of a city and the life of a church except that God has begun a work there? And it leads Paul to the conclusion that I think God has surely begun a work here because I see in you the fruit of the gospel being produced. That's something that only the Spirit can do. 
as it turns out, a genuinely Christ-centered life is a work that only God can do. That's the first thing we have to understand about living a Christ-centered life. It's a miraculous work that God alone can do. Do you know how inherently self-centered we are? Before I got married, I, I didn't think I was selfish. And then I got married, and I realized just how selfish I was. And then, together, we grew selfish. It turns out the whole one flesh thing can actually produce a one flesh selfishness. And then we had kids. Andrew and I used to go see a movie almost every Sunday night. That gravy train ended real quick. Our money was spent on ourselves. We didn't have to spend it on anybody else. We can be awfully self-centered. So what does it take then to shift someone from being self-centered to Christ-centered? It's not just marriage. It's not just having kids. You can be selfish as a family. It's these things that reveal selfishness to you, that bring you to repentance. This is a work only God can do. But you understand that all of this has really two applications. When Paul says to them, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's confident that what God begins, he will finish. That has two applications. That has both an application to our church body as a whole, but it also has an individual application. Corporately, he has accomplished in a church body a deep and abiding relationship built on the foundation of the gospel with Jesus Christ. And what is it that the gospel actually does for us? Well, it forms a new foundation and the crux of all of our relationships. It tears down walls of hostility, Paul tells us in Ephesians, between Jew and Gentile, but it also tears down walls of hostility between any two other things. What Paul is saying in Ephesians is that not only does he tear down the wall of hostility, but he builds a new foundation on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now you and another Christian can get along, even though you might not see eye to eye otherwise. This, it turns out, is a compelling interest to the world around us who cannot get along unless they are of the same identity. And yet here Paul is saying, there is fruit born in gospel faithfulness because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has brought together people that would otherwise not have fellowship. And now there is a deep and abiding fellowship on the grounds of the gospel. When he says fellowship there, when he says partnership in the gospel, what he means is not fellowship like we would think about it in just a few minutes when we all go in there and have a good old-fashioned fellowship potluck. That's not what he's talking about. Although I'd love to find potlucks in the Bible, I'm sure they're there. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a partnership, a fellowship like you might have in a business. Two people coming together with a common interest, a common desire. A desire to see this thing from beginning to end succeed. 
What happens then is when two people are founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ, it leaves no room in a church for backbiting, for hatred, for slander, for bitterness towards one another. All of it has to be dispelled. And there's some going on in the church at Philippi. We learn about this in Philippians 4, verse 2, between Euodia and Syntyche. Both of them, whomever, whomever they are, are having a problem with each other, and Paul writes, wanting them to reconcile. Because the gospel fruit that's born in a church, the bedrock foundation of the gospel that's there, should be dispelling all forms of backbiting, hatred, gossip, slander, and bitterness towards one another. So their partnership with him in the gospel, the fact that they're coming together as a body of Christ, the fact that there is unity there, amongst the congregation of any sort on the foundation of the gospel is evidence that God has begun a work in you. But it also has an individual meaning. God begins the work in salvation in an individual. Notice in Lydia, God is the one that opens her heart to actually pay attention to what Paul is speaking the same seems true of the Philippian jailer, though not stated explicitly. God begins the work in salvation in an individual. And what Paul is saying is that God, if God has genuinely begun a work in someone's life, He will complete it. Why? Because He is faithful. And He actually, the means that God uses to complete that work in your life is actually the church around you. What does he say in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When we come here together as a church body and we hear the Word of God read, preached, prayed, sung, whatever, whether we know the words or whether we don't, whether we're familiar with the song or whether we're not, when we come together and we hear the Word of God read and preached, what does it do but it trains and equips us and prepares us for every good work? But he also uses the elders and overseers of the church in the teaching of this Word as it accomplishes this purpose. In Ephesians 4, 11-14, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers what? to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the, wave, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cutting, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." So not only does he use the word, but he uses the word preached through the elders or overseers, the shepherds and teachers of the church. And it equips the saints for the work of ministry to what end? To the building up of the body. So how does he accomplish what he says in verse 6 there? What God has begun. If God has begun the good work in you, he will see it through to the end. Well, he uses his word. He uses the teachers of the church. But he also uses the whole body. He actually uses each part. The person sitting next to you, the person sitting across the room, 
is his means of doing this. In the very next verse, in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How is it that the body grows? How is it that God accomplishes the work that He started and brings it to completion in the end? Well, the body that He brings together on the grounds of the gospel of Jesus Christ, He causes to react to one another, to react to the teaching of the Word, to react to the preaching of the Word, and coming together and actually doing the work of ministry in the congregation and outside of the congregation, trains and equips each other until it builds itself up in love. Remember, brothers and sisters, we not only serve a resurrected Christ, but a Christ who came with a mission. He came to die in the place of His people and suffer the wrath of God on the cross. But remember that His mission was so accomplished that on the cross, he could say, it is finished. Church history had yet to begin. And Jesus is on the cross saying out loud, it is finished. Our Lord and Savior had so completed his work of atonement for his church there on the cross that he could proclaim out loud, it's done. All of it is accomplished. I have done the work that I came to do. Three days later, he rises again. Soon after, takes his seat next to the Ancient of Days and is right now ruling and reigning on his behalf. So then it's with utmost confidence, if Jesus can say that on the cross that Paul can say about his church at Philippi, or even about us, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our faithfulness to the gospel is ultimately God's work. Our faithfulness both individually as Christians, our faithfulness corporately as a church, to the gospel, to sound doctrine, to teaching and preaching, to living out what is taught and preached, to obeying it with everything we've got is ultimately a work of God. You understand, God is the master builder of our faith, not us. The difference is, when God is the master builder, He doesn't stand back and think to Himself, really wish I would have done this. Or I, I wish I would have known that ahead of time. If only I had that tool. If only I had this, it would have been different. Do you understand what it means when he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ? For the Christian, that forms all of our thoughts for every bit of sadness, for every suffering we could possibly ever endure, 
for every joy and excitement, for all exuberance that we could possibly ever have. What we are to understand is that that is all a part of the building process. You understand in, in the building process there are things that hurt. There's cancer. There's suffering. There's trial and tribulation. We sometimes watch the kids that we raise run off and leave. We eat chicken and blueberries, organic, free-range, all the rest of our days, and still end up with a heart attack in the middle of running a marathon. How is it that these things come about? Why is it that they come about? What Paul is saying about this is that all of it is part of the building process. That as it turns out, all the bit of suffering is the chisel that we're being hit with. It's God's means of producing an end. You aren't the cabinet maker of your life. You're the cabinet. You're being made. We aren't looking at the end of our life for some sense of accomplishment to be able to look back and say, look at what we made of our life. What the world is telling you, you only live once. Live your best life now is not true. If you only live once, you're going to hell. Now what we're looking back on our life is we're taking inventory of what God has done. Every chisel mark, every nail struck, every brush of paint is with intention. It's purposeful. So we're looking in the midst of our life for the comfort that that brings. Knowing that no matter what you're going through, all of this is part of the process of Him making you into what He wants you to be. The question is whether or not you trust Him. How is it possible that this can bring about that? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Do you trust Him? If you knew the answers, you would be God. Do you trust Him? Remember what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you understand? Every moment of your life, Every car ride, every conversation, every discussion, Jesus says every careless word, every thought, every motivation, every seemingly meaningless trip, that all of those events in your life are boiling down to one singular point where you stand in front of the throne of God. Do you understand that? Every single moment in your life is boiling to one singular point where you're going to stand before the throne of God and give an account for it all. 
your trust is not in Christ. If indeed he has not begun a work in you. Can you imagine what that day will be like to stand before the Ancient of Days, perfect and holy, and give an account for every careless word by yourself? Listen, if you're currently not trusting in Christ, I would urge you to reconsider your choices, to repent of your sin. It's as simple as trusting that Christ's atonement is enough for you. And your belief, your confession, your repentance is the good work that He's beginning in you. Do you understand how it changes if when you stand before God on that day, He's giving an account for His own work in your life? Do you understand how that's different? If you're not giving an account for how you built the cabinet, but if God is saying, here's why all of these marks are the way they are, if Jesus Himself stands up on your behalf and says, He's mine, She's mine. I bought her with my own blood. All of this is my work. Can you imagine what that's like? Can you imagine not having to give an account for yourself? But one like the Son of Man with a crown on His head stands in between you and the Almighty says, this one's mine. It gives us tremendous confidence. So many people struggle day in and day out with their faith, question whether or not God really loves them. Christian, 2,000 years ago, he said, it is finished. He set His love on you. And if He began that work in you, He will see it through to the end. Oh, there is work to be done. And you are responsible. He tells you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Repent of your sin. Be faithful. Trust yourself to the regular means of grace, the preaching, the teaching of His Word, the reading of His Word, the prayer. Trust yourself to all of those things. But He follows that up in Philippians with, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do. So your work is not alone. Your work is given to you by God Himself as well. So Christian, struggling with your faith, Rejoice. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to the end. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for the hearts of those in this room. First, for those who came never having entered into a relationship with you. Might you, like 
Lydia, like you did so many years ago, open the ears of that person to hear, to believe, to receive the gospel preached, to trust in Christ, to repent of sin, to believe, to desire someone else, give an account for their life. Would you save them? To those struggling in faith, would you assure them? Would you comfort them? Yes, bring them to repentance. But reassure them of your love for them. Open their heart to to hear this word, to trust that what you have begun, you will finish. That you are not a procrastinator. Father, for all of us, would you unite us on the grounds of the gospel where there is disagreement or bitterness or envy or strife or slander or hatred? Would you bury it? Would you cast it as far as the east is from the west that what we may be found together on is the gospel so that we might live to the glory of Christ that the world might see and believe. In Jesus' name, amen.